0: It's Friday, January the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jennifer Bray and Cormac McQuinn are here to discuss the political week, which has seen the return of the Dáil after the Christmas recess, the speedy passage of legislation through that doll, setting up two referendums in March, ongoing tensions at local and national level over accommodation for refugees, and underneath it, all the low hum of rising anticipation of elections later in the year. So plenty to talk about. Hi, guys. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Hugh. We'll actually, we'll go to migration first, Jen, I think, because it is still the the big story and keeps rumbling on and various kinds of manifestations. Uh, Two things we wanted to talk about uh, this week. One was this rather unusual motion passed by Mayo County Council, which caused ructions uh, after it was passed earlier in the week.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the long and the short of this motion passed by councillors is that they don't want to deal with the Department of Integration um, and and the motion which they passed to that effect, it's not binding, um, but it does show their intent. Um, and I know that there were government councillors and I know Cormac was writing about this and um, who voted in favour of that. And what it shows, I think, is we talked before about leading up to the local elections and the fact that this local election will be very different to the ones that went before because you know, we have the phrase all politics is local is particularly true coming up to June. And I think local councillors, they can be, they are more in touch with what's happening in their immediate vicinity, obviously. Um, and they're the ones, I think, who are get the first line, I think, of political defence, um, who are feeling a, a political, um, local anger about, I suppose, the influx of refugees and international protection applicants. because there was a particular
0: case in Mayo in Baton mm-hmm. Robe in, in recent weeks.
2: There was, yeah, and we mentioned that before. And then obviously we had Ross Cray and the, I suppose, the tensions there, um, which is very interesting, actually, if you look at our front pages and, and how that story played out over a couple of days. We saw scuffles outside. Um, that centre, and then a couple of days later we saw a picture on the front page of the Irish Times of two women who brought toys, and uh, bits and pieces for the kids, and, and they they got a picture with the toys, and they were saying, you know, we have no issue with the people who are inside this centre. We have an issue with the fact that the community, and these are there, kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what they were saying, that the community uh, cannot handle They've already taken on a couple of hundred um, refugees and uh, asylum seekers, and I think that changed the narrative a little bit for... At least publicly, but also definitely what I detected in government were people saying, well, actually, we can't really argue with that. Um, you know, if these people are saying they don't have an issue with people who are coming into Cray, they have an issue with the fact that the services are stretched. And what this led to during the week was this plan that we heard. First time we heard of it, honestly, who was uh, Leo Varagad Taoiseach walking into cabinet on Tuesday morning. And he said that he was going to ask, all the departments to pick the 10 areas that have the highest number of refugees and provide a special package of supports. He said that package of support would involve justice, education and health. So people obviously then, the obvious leap is that more guards, more teachers, more doctors, or at least more resources for extra people in those areas. Um, And to me, I feel like I was on that evening on the late shift so I'd pull together kind of the front page piece about it and I was ringing around different departments to get a bit more information and telling you straight up that idea is written on the back of an envelope. Um, Nobody knew anything about it. Nobody could tell me how much money has been put aside, where will the money come from um, are you actually talking about extra guards? Are you talking about extra nurses? They couldn't They couldn't even say that. Um, they couldn't tell me exactly what the top 10 areas were. They couldn't even tell me which department was responsible for picking the top 10 areas. They said integration. I rang someone integration. They said, honestly, it was like the first time they'd heard of it.
1: 10 is very arbitrary as well. I mean, yeah. why, why not top 15 or why not the, is there mm-hmm. not five places that have the most refugees? You know, it's, yeah. it's it, even that part of it seems back of the envelope. And
2: then what about number 11? who might have just Mm -hmm. 20 fewer than number 10. And then the more people who come in, the more communities that are affected. And I can see this being potentially something that comes back and kind of bites them a little bit. So there's an awful lot
0: in there Cormac, maybe just to go back to the beginning because I want to go through various things which which, which Jen mentioned there, did, to take it back to Mayo and as she said, I mean I th- did you talk to some of the councillors? I did,
1: yeah I mean it, the, it was the actual motion to end cooperation in relation to refugee housing between council staff and central government was put forward by an independent councillor, Michael Kilcoyne, uh, but it, it was passed unanimously without a vote, no, there was no dissenting voices at the meeting of Mayo County Council on Monday uh, the, the Fine whip, uh, Peter Flynn, he's actually the whip of the largest uh, representative group in Mayo County Council, fully backed it as well as did his colleagues. Um, He was essentially saying that um, you know, okay yeah it's against government policy but we have to represent our our local our local uh, people as well. It's also who,
0: purely nonsense and performative, isn't it? Because oh, it has absolutely. no impact well, at mean, all. on Anything that the actual to give you council an actually does. The of
1: that. Uh, the, the response from the Department of Integration will continue to work with Mayo County Council. The response from Mayo County Council will consider that motion. They circulated it to ministers, every other council. That's probably job done as far as they're concerned. The Taoiseach said his understanding is it's non-binding. So it, it like it, it it points to the limited powers that that councillors have anyway, but. It's politically dangerous because you have members of government parties openly defying government policy and saying that their their local area should not cooperate with which uh, refugees being sent there until the necessary services are are provided. This this is the second part of the motion, which is they want more school places more doctors sir so, you know all of that sort of stuff um, to be and then they they would start cooperation again uh, so that it, it it's kind of it, it's actually linked to this this uh, this uh, package of, of measures that in, the government indeed, is and I'll going I'll come to, to the package
0: in a minute, but viewed through a political lens, particularly for the larger parties and particularly perhaps most of all for, for the government parties, it sets up this sort of a disjunction as we go into this year of elections with local elections, first of all, and probably a general election later in the year, that the par- these parties are to some extent, their representatives are speaking out of both sides of their mouths. The sure. uh, the councillors are saying one thing, the government, you know, ministers and dull deputies are saying uh, quite a different thing. At some point, those tensions are going to break, aren't they? We've already had, I think, disciplinary proceedings have been instituted against two two Fianna Fianna Fáil councillors in in Galway over what happened outside Hukterard. So this is going to be, this is heating up all the time. Well, yeah, and
1: and actually one one interesting part of that motion is that part of the, you know, Parliamentary demand was to circulate it to all other local authorities. Uh, so, the, like the only purpose of that really would be potentially to encourage others to take similar stands. And whether it's powerless or not, it's still it's still a, a political statement. And you know, it's not it's awkward for the government when local representatives are voting for something to happen that they claim to represent their local communities and then it's it's ignored essentially by by council managements you know it's it's a, it's it's a dicey situation particularly coming into the local elections and it's it's ripe for you know, kind of far-right activists to jump on. So the point has issue. been
0: made that when these pressures do arise in, in local communities, it's independent councillors, independent local representatives first, who are the first to react because of the nature of of the way Irish politics works. But then in turn, the the councillors from the larger parties react to what the independents are doing because they're sensitive to the same pressures. And we kind of see that. Another thing that happened in Mayo, which I think is, is interesting and some people might find it worrying, is that uh, the protest was about quote-unquote, unvetted males arriving in a particular centre. And when there was, a, we understand, a policy change and they, and people were told that families would be moving into that centre, um, the protests seemed to die down or the amount of resistance seemed to die down. But that was, in other words, the government uh, or the department was reacting and changing its policies as a result of that protest. Sure, and, and it, it makes it one wonder about Ross Gray then, it which, is, which is supposed to house...
1: Yeah, I mean, it diffused things in Mayo, perhaps, but yeah, you, you mentioned Ross Cray, the, the the scenes were, uh, they were there were women and children going in while the protests were were happening. So I mean, it it kind of it proves the 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 falsehood that the only thing that people are against are single males, you know, which we actually already knew because there were already protests against uh, centres housing families in, in East Wall and Dublin la- as far back as last year, if I, if I recall. So so does know, this
0: mean that the political system is starting to bend in response to these pressures, whether by adjusting the plans for a specific centre or coming up with this, Jen's back of an envelope uh, plan for the, for the 10 places?
1: If they are, it's not going to work, you know, because... I think fundamentally, people are just—they just don't want these centres in their communities. Uh, they, they, perhaps the most legitimate arguments they can make is that pressure on services like GPs and and things like that, uh, because. There, there are genuine pressures. Try getting a doctor's appointment in a, in the space of a couple of days anywhere in Dublin or or otherwise, and it's very difficult. You know, uh, but I mean, if those if those issues were solved, you would wonder if if there would still be protests.
0: But I, I mean, I I do take the point to some extent that we do know that you know these these issues are not dispersed evenly across the country. There is questions of. Uh, social class at play in in cities in Dublin in particular. That some parts of the, of, city, of the city seem to have much larger numbers of refugee accommodation than uh, than others do. And also, we do know that the way in which the state reacted to the to the Ukrainian crisis and then more recently to the the, the, in the number of temporary protection of refugees has been to kind of go into the tourism industry really and to, and to sublet tourist accommodation hotels in particular. And we have seen started seeing some pushback in the west of Ireland about that well, because where another, most of that accommodation is
1: available. Of the Mayo motion was mm. to stop using accommodation intended for tourism purposes.
2: Yeah, but the problem is they don't have alternative accommodation. So later this month, uh, if not early next month, Roger Cogorman's going to bring a planned cabinet and I think he'll outline possibly around 10 new centres, state-built, state-land, um, potentially. And there's a number of different benefits to this in that it's planned so people know where they're going. Uh, it's also better for the state in terms of financial, I mean, the amount of money that we're spending on private accommodation, whether that be B&B's guest house, it's,
0: extraordinary. it's yeah.
2: absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I think there really is a feeling in government that that can continue. However, the only thing I would say about this plan is that it is a rehash of an old plan that Catherine Day, she had an advisory group and she recommended this at least twice, if not three times now. Uh, since the start of this coalition and reiterate last year. And she asked late last summer, I remember we did an interview with her and she said, why haven't they started on this? I mean, so they were given ample warning that these centres were needed. And I don't understand why they didn't take that warning. And Why does this go back to we
0: were reporting uh, probably a couple of months back now about tensions at cabinet level that Radhika Gorman, this all lands on his plate and he was looking to kind of, to. there are some changes of policy imminent in relation to Ukrainians and there was resistance to that from the Department of Housing because they don't want it on their yeah. plate. So that's what's really happening, isn't it? I mean, we did an
2: interview Radhika Gorman over Christmas or just before Christmas and we ran it over Christmas and one of the questions I asked him was is there a genuine legitimate tension between your department and the Department of Housing. And he ju- he said no. I mean, he kind of danced mm. around it a little bit, but eventually he just said no. But I don't believe that because I think there's a delicate political game going on here where the Department of Housing have a whole range of sites, whether they be, you know, unbuilt on or whatever, earmarked for public housing, earmarked for their Housing for All plan. Um, and I think that there is, you know, this argument in, from the far right that these are people coming over here taking Irish homes and this kind of stuff. That is a road the government doesn't want to go down. So they're very clear. What's in the Department of Housing is for the Housing for All plan. What's in the Department of Integration, that is the immediate response. And they're trying to, I suppose, walk the tightrope there and failing, I think. Mm.
0: I, I take your point about the 10 areas and that seems very random and very ad hoc and not particularly impressive but it probably would be useful for all of us wouldn't it to actually know where people are uh, and if there has been an actual significant population increase in certain towns in the in the west of ireland for example
1: would be good for the people yeah, there I mean, and for uh, everybody else to know that, but it has
0: an effect on on gp care on education
1: system on everything else i think know? a certain amount of that information is out there it is no well they
2: publish it every week yeah, um they have statistics that they publish um around the areas that are the most impacted, the areas with the highest amount, you'd probably be unsurprised, like Dublin, obviously. Actually,
0: Cormac has done a very good job of whipping up um, the numbers on this. These are for the applications for international protection.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they, the government publish these figures every week, so unsurprisingly, uh, Dublin is the highest, 9,458 people in, in, in the various local authorities in the capital, and uh, that's followed by Donegal, 1,679, followed by Wicklow, 1,277, followed by Mayo, 1,240, uh, then multiple hundreds in lots of other places as well. Uh, you know. It, it's it's just it is a reflection on the the massive increase we have had in asylum seekers from other countries other than just Ukraine over the last the last couple of years as well since the end of the pandemic essentially so it's the, it's the kind of twin pronged uh, pressure on the system between the the hundred thousand odd Ukrainians of, of whom eighty thousand are here and I think it's about twenty four thousand odd uh, international protection seekers uh, that, that that the state is, is housing
2: and also interestingly in those figures if you look at the arrivals between the 5th of January and the 7th of January, the highest number of rivals were children. It was 19 in those couple of days, 19 children. Mm. And then it was couples. There were couples. and They were 18. uh, And then single males, uh, 15. And then single females, 14. And we know that children arriving unaccompanied is a massive issue as well. Um, There's huge protection risks there. So the figures are interesting to look at and they're published every week.
1: And the other thing is, Jack horgan Jones our colleague did a did a story in the last couple of weeks about how the proportion of single males has fallen amongst the amongst the asylum seekers I, th- I think it's still a high number in, in comparison but the the percentage in percentage terms it went I think from about 50 percent or 45 percent or so to to kind of 25, 20 Did I six. also
0: see a off-the-record, very off-the-record hint from government sources that that may be a result in part at least of the fact that the word has gone around that there's no accommodation We're available sure for single males. Again, the,
1: the latest figures will be published at some point today, but there's, there's certainly more than 500s um asylum seekers single male asylum seekers who have not been able to be housed over since the start of december they're they're essentially homeless they're diff- they're sent to uh to homeless charities in in dublin uh and who who then help them uh, so that that again it just shows the pressure and on in the relation to and
0: nothing I was just reading kitty holland's piece about homelessness in dublin has been very cold in the city over the last uh, over the last few days people queuing up for food and assistance on on o'connell street i think it was and that actually the majority of them were international protection applicants from from Africa and from the Middle East. And they were saying, and the the charity workers were saying that they can't give them shelter because the shelters are specifically for Irish homeless people. They can give them other assistance, they can give them food, but there's nothing available for them, so that's...
2: Wow, I wasn't aware of that.
0: ...grim in in its own way as well. We move on to another subject that pertains to Radhika Gorman who really seems to be hes uh, <laughs> flat-catcher general, isn't he, in this, uh, yeah. in, in this government at the moment. The, um, as I mentioned at the, at the top of the podcast, the two referendums are due to take place on International Women's Day, March the 8th, and they zoomed, zoomed through the, through the doll this week, not without uh, moments of, of levity. Have a m- listen to this. So the very clear policy intention of the government is that, uh, whether it's a polygamous relationship, I've heard the words truffles thrown around, these sort of relations, truffles. 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 Oh, sorry, truffles. Truffles. No, I did not. I did not. Yeah. You're getting hungry. But that that issue has come up in some of the debates, so we're very clear such a, such a relationship is not covered within the concept of durability and it's not covered in the expanded concept of the family. So that was an interaction between um, independent uh, TD for Claire, Michael McNamara and uh, Minister for, for Integration, um, Roderick O'Gorman. I don't think we've ever discussed troubles in this studio before. Uh, no. I don't know if anybody has any any views on, this, on, on the subject, but it was one of these uh, points arising from uh, something we've mentioned before in relation to the, this referendum wording, the question of what is, uh, the word is a durable relationship and what does, does durable either mean, uh, actually mean the, the minister was holding the line there, um, but I I do wonder, you know, I'm a regular reader of the Irish Times Saturday magazine, Cormac, and I'm sure you as well have noticed that it occasionally runs articles about polyamory, not polygamy. As the minister points out, polygamy is, is illegal in Ireland. Polyamory is perfectly legal. Why shouldn't a polyamory-ish three-way relationship be regarded as
1: durable? I mean that's the the difficulty with this wording, isn't it? I mean, how, how what what's a durable relationship? What isn't? I mean, just my own off the cuff thing is, you know, like couples are hard enough to keep together, let alone couples I don't I don't know if uh, I don't know if, if if it it would be durable. But uh, triples tr- so, so are a different so some people, altogether. Some mind people you. might make it work. Uh,
0: Our parliamentary sketch writer Miriam Lord was back in the back in the saddle this week, and obviously she had great fun with this, um, Jen. It. I have mixed feelings about this because part of me thinks this is the kind of nonsense that we heard a little bit during the same sex equality uh, marriage referendum about, oh, cousins or brothers and sisters will be marrying each other next. Everything will be permitted. And that was kind of it was it was borderline offensive. i I, I seem to remember at the time. But I think there is a legitimate question about what do people mean by a durable relationship? And what, well, the minister says quite rightly that uh, polygamy is illegal. Um the definition and the response really, which is that oh the courts will define this afterwards seems insufficient.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think from well, first thing that I would say is people can get their ask me anything question in now for Christmas twenty twenty four if they want to know what we really think of thruples, but personally it sounds exhausting. But um yeah, I think first thing,
0: spreading the load, you know, it might help.
2: Yeah, I suppose. I suppose <laughs> you know, sharing is caring.
0: <laughs> More people to empty the dishwasher.
2: Yes, and I, well, listen, I'd be all up for that, you know, or at least pack it properly, for God's sake. Um But anyway, uh, when, when this happened in the doll, when there was this interaction, first I was following the debate because I'm doing a, a feature for tomorrow's paper on it. Um So I was following it closely and I was actually having a chat with Pat, our colleague Pat Leahy, in the office. And you were there as well. We were talking about thruples, and is this going to come up? And people were talking about this basically, like behind the scenes or whatever. And then when... That exchange happened, which I honestly, I did find very funny. And I mean, it was the
0: minister who brought it up, by the way, which yeah, I thought but, was interesting.
2: In fact, he, it did sound like he said truffles at first and I was like, what? But I immediately text Miriam Lord. I was like, tell me you saw that. Tell me this is like gold for your column. And her column was excellent and anyone who hasn't read it and needs a laugh at the end of the week just go back and read that and you will have a laugh um but i think sorry to your question yeah this is the issue the one thing i was really struck by in the debate um was i personally felt that roger gorman didn't do a great job of adequately explaining what a durable relationship is i mean at one point he was talking about you know these aren't transient relationships and even they got into well what will be the length of a durable relationship where we talk, is a durable relationship one that's been in existence for 20 years? And the answer seems to be no. It's more the intensity of the relationship. And then you're getting into a whole different realm of confusion. And one of, I think there's five big risks for um, the government with this referendum. Don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with them all. Oh no, please do. But one of them is, um, one of them is confusion. I think when people are like, if I, I don't know what this means and there seems to be, you know, this camp and that camp, if I don't know, I'll vote no. There's the don't know, vote no cup. And, and that's a real danger for the government. Um, and I think they really need to explain exactly what a durable relationship is. Um, and it's not really good enough to say, well, it might be tested in the courts in future because I don't think people like trifle with the Constitution in that way. Um, I think people have a lot of respect for it equally while understanding it was written in the 30s. It was a very different time. Um Yeah, I I, I don't know. I think they have a job to do there and I don't think they did it very well in the doll. And
0: what do you think? I think we're starting to see a bit of pushback against the negative response, which we saw last week, certainly in the pages of the Irish Times, but Mm -hmm. on the the latest page and from columnists such as Michael McDougall, very strong column from Justine McCarthy in today's newspaper, pushing back against that sort of narrative and and pushing back against, uh, she doesn't name anybody, but what she calls mansplaining.
2: Yeah, I loved this column, this like made my whole morning. Uh, Totally not surprising to anybody in the room but um, uh, I was on the bus reading it in and I just had like a warm glow reading it because it was written so well and it's so funny. Um, But she makes some great points in fairness. Um, I actually would like to quote from a a part of it if that's okay Hugh. She was talking about how in the treasure trove she says that comprises John Charles McQuaid's paper there is a note at the then uh, Catholic Archbishop of Dublin to Eamon de Valera who's a Taoiseach and He observed, uh, John Charles McQuaid, quote, that the feminists are getting angry about the draft 1937 constitution. They seem stung by the suggestion that the normal place for a woman is in the home. And Justine in her piece goes on to talk about how the implication of that is, well, of course, a woman's place in the home. They seem really stung about that anyway. Um, And I think this is possibly maybe one of the strongest arguments that the yes side will have to go on. The no side have, I think, absolutely correctly, by the way, said this is symbolic And it doesn't really change anything in women's lives. I agree with that personally. However, if the yes side choose to go and take kind of Justine's argument a little bit, okay, that may be so, but if you vote no, this change to the constitution will go to the very, very, very back of the queue and potentially never, ever be seen again. So your daughter's daughters could be living under this article of the constitution. Perhaps that's an argument that they. We'll use. I
0: suppose the response might be, and I have seen, and we've seen, including on the latest pages of the Irish Times, actual defences of the actual wording, people who say mm. it is archaic, but it does actually reflect the real lived experience of, of of women in Ireland to this day to some extent. And then I've seen, obviously, huge pushback like from Justine today on, on that as an interpretation of it. But all of that sort of begs the, the question, which has sort of been here from the start, is you probably could get a quite comfortable majority getting rid of this. It's the replacing it with something else that well, really causes okay, the problems. So we talked you
2: know? on the last podcast, I think, about we were trying to figure out why has it become so confused? Like, why, have the, why has the issue with care become so entwined with the issue of removing this reference to a woman's place in the home? Uh, and a couple of people got in touch with me after the podcast, including Jane Suter from DCU, um, and gave me a couple of uh, pointers. And I won't bore you to all of them, but it's in the piece tomorrow. But basically, since 1993... That's when we had the Second Commission on Status of Women, and they addressed this. We've had at least 15 reports since then, all through the 90s, early 2000s. And what all, basically, in a nutshell, the overarching recommendation from all of those different conventions, assemblies, uh, committees, groups, forums, internal groups, task forces, you name it, was we need to get rid of this reference, or at least propose to get rid of this reference from the Constitution, but it should be there should still be a recognition of care within the home that's gender neutral. Then it kind of became, well, just carers then. That's how, and, and every single report has recommended it. And once I think former Minist, uh, Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan tried to just go straight forward, delete, and I, I'm i told now, I, I couldn't find reference to it, but I have a good source who says that a lot of the NGOs, like the women's group behind the scenes, were like, we're not going to back you on this. And he ended up completely pulling that idea. Mm.
0: So well, with I, all due respect to Jane, who is a, a mm. valued occasional contributor to this to this podcast, um, I do wonder sometimes, you know, I mean, why not? Why did, was it deemed necessary to add something, which mm. by all accounts, including the National Women's Council uh, over the last week or so, is just as symbolic as the other symbolic thing we're taking out. You know, everybody's Getting dancing on the edge of symbolic pins here.
2: But it was supposed to be, it was supposed to go much further than this. That was the suggestion that it would be care within the home and the wider community and that that meant something in terms of government policy and also resources. Um, now, obviously, the government, their position is it's up to us how we decide our policy and it's up to us how we decide where we put our resources. That is not the Constitution's job and it's not that should not be in the place of the Constitution to decide, you know, uh, and they're worried, I suppose, that if they give this protection and specifically to support the provision of care within the community, you're putting a hierarchy in place of potentially private sector workers or public sector workers or whomever. And that's legal advice that they've got. The long and the short of it, Hugh, is that we've ended up here because of a really long 30 year journey. And when they tried to go straightforward, delete for forward, it just didn't work, and the NGOs wouldn't back them. They have the grudging, grudging support of the NGOs now. The problem is there's two referendums. One of them is on family, and that's to extend the definition of family, marriage, or other durable relationships, and that's what we're talking about with truffles and triples. Uh, and the other one is deleting the reference or uh, of women, women's place and duties in the home, and putting in this uh, article about care. And I think the first one. On um, family has become complicated by all this truffle and trouble talk, and the other and also immigration, by the way, which is very. I think that's where it's going to go. And the other one, the two issues of care, and the, they've become conflated.
1: Whatever about troubles, sounds like this is in trouble. That's the impression you would get. All right, I mean, I, I think there's there's kind of an enthusiasm deficit amongst uh, groups that should should be you know, campaigning for a yes vote on both because it doesn't go as far as they want. And I think I think perhaps the biggest threat is uh, apathy amongst the general public, except for the people who either oppose it or who just want to give the government a kicking, uh, who will be much more motivated to actually go out there and cast a vote Some on, on March comparisons
0: 8. have been drawn with, the I think, the children's referendum, mm-hmm. which was a little bit over 10 years ago, which only passed by a squeak in the end, even though it seems to be a relatively uncontentious subject. Because yeah. that combination of apathy, confusion, and there's always going to be people who want to use these things to give the government a kicking anyway.
2: Actually, there's a stats on that. There was 3.1 million people who were eligible to vote in the children's rights referendum. And basically what that referendum was to insert a new article long and the short of it to like strengthen those rights. Um, and 3.1 million people were eligible to vote. Um, but the campaign was useless, basically um, confusing and got bogged down in, in this, that and the other. And in the end, turnout was 33.5%. Uh, when the votes were counted, it passed 57.4% to 42.6%. And the size of the Novo, I remember, took people by surprise. Because that was a
0: less contentious subject than this is I mean, children's rights. I mean, who's mm. against
2: children's rights? Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs>
0: yes, the, the apple pie referendum, mm. really, as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, we're going to take a break, then we'll be back on another subject after this. you're very welcome back. It strikes me, Cormac, that, both subjects which we discussed before the break, both immigration and the upcoming referendum, are sort of inflected by this sense in politics at large that everybody's limbering up for election time. And that's affecting the way in which decisions are made.
1: Sure. I mean, uh, I've seen speculation uh, that, you know, the... There would be. It's a good idea to get a, this referendum out of the way first, to get, because the government will get the kicking then, rather than at the local elections or in the general elections. I'm not sure I'd buy that, because you know <laughs> you don't march up the hill on an on an issue like this with the expectation that it's going to be voted down. I mean, it'd be a very Machiavellian approach altogether. Maybe 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 there is there is some something in that, but I I just don't personally buy it.
0: Um, is it is not more just that the government felt it had to do it. It was a, it was a pretty serious commitment, part of the program for government. They'd gone through the process of the citizens assembly. They'd had their Arachus committee. They would have looked very bad if they hadn't. If they yeah, hadn't there's put There's the other government. side of it, though, isn't there? there it's
2: the, is you know, the symbolic feminist progressive victory as well. Well, then
1: it was, was, wasn't the the intention to hold a referendum? Albeit they wanted it in November, announced on National women or International Women's Day last year, and now it's going to be.
2: That's what it was actually yeah.
1: held on International Women's Day this year. I mean, it does like it. It had all the hallmarks of a of a, a popular social referendum, like the the marriage equality one. Uh, you know, to some quarters, but then they spent months and months and months realising the wording on this is very difficult to to do in any any way that doesn't give us, mean that we end up with all of these other obligations in the constitution to provide care. So, I mean, but then like, you know, the, if they wanted a kicking they could have uh, done the, the housing referendum the right to housing referendum and that, that would have surely provided it with, the, with them but I, I think we'd be shocked if, if that actually happens by the end of the, the government's term given no, that I, I think we safely say that's that. going to happen but
0: can yeah. we expect political parties to be out on the doorstep at all for this referendum I, I or is mean just...
1: I, I was trying to get the, the positions of the opposition parties last week before the doll debate and none of them would commit to campaigning for a yes vote since then we've only seen people before Profit of all parties actually saying that they will campaign for a yes, albeit they believe what's been proposed falls short of what what should be there. I think all the other parties Sinn Féin, Labour, Social Democrats—will fall into line in that as well, and they'll do a, a yes vote. it be unenthusiastic. What would be really interesting to see, when it, you know whether they declare it or we wait, and see if there's there's subsequent accounts in, in in years to come, is how much they all spend on it. Uh, mm. You know, I, I did kind of a, a very. Glance over what, what was spent in previous referendums, and you know, you know, some certain parties, the bigger parties, were spending, you know, the, the guts of hundred fifty thousand euro on like the marriage equality referendum uh, in twenty fifteen. But then, if you look at the divorce referendum, which was a fairly popular cause in terms of uh, shortening the length of time it takes to get a divorce, that was in twenty nineteen, the spending was was much lower. It was more more in the region of sixty thousand. Will parties be willing to open their coffers uh, for this issue? That none of them are terribly enthusiastic about about, uh, ahead of local elections, general elections when they they need these sorts of funds. But is there
0: any way at all? I mean, I've noticed and I'm sure you have in uh, in previous years that certain uh, political parties and some TDs are very adept at at, at using certain other kinds of campaigns to circumvent the laws about putting up posters and things like that. So you'll see meetings, you know, there's a meeting about Gaza or there's a meeting about something else and suddenly, oh, that meeting has a big picture of a politician on the top of it because they're chairing the meeting in a local hotel or whatever it is. Could you not see a bit of that over the course of the, the referendum campaign?
2: Mm, I don't know. See, There's a danger there and th- also you're right, you see, you walking down the street and you see town hall meeting and it's just their face, you yeah. know, and you don't see the writing because it's and tiny.
0: Because it's essentially the same poster that's going to be up again is. when yeah. the election comes around. Yeah, look, it? I'm yeah.
2: a fan of posters so more power to them. But the danger here as well is that they... So if you think of the previous referendums, in the abortion referendum, there was a huge emphasis put on the fact that we should trust doctors and medics were kind of people like people like Rona Mahoney and stuff. There are people who are out to the fore of the campaign or, or um, Peter Boylan. And I think this time they I think the government would like if they had outside voices that people would trust that aren't tied to the government and that. Diminishes the chance of the government getting this kind of second order kicking. Really, does does
1: anyone from a government party want their face associated with what could well be a kicking and a defeat in in a couple of months' time? You know, I I I think it's it's you might see it maybe if there are parties on the no side. uh, That's that's a possibility uh, that they might be want to be associated and Hoover up that that. Cohort in the electorate that that will oppose well, this. Well, there's an
0: opportunity possibly for AIM 2 which would be one of the the few parties currently represented in the Dáil who I, I think is quite are quite likely to but, to uh, oppose this. But again, this, also also a that, party you know? that
1: didn't respond to, to my queries mm-hmm. on where That's they would stand.
0: But then more broadly, I, I noticed there was a point in the uh, in an Irish Times editorial this week. I mean, the the NGOs have been encouraged by radical Gorman and other members of the government to you know to really get on board with this and start campaigning. Many of those NGOs are largely funded by the state itself, and there may be constraints on their ability to do that.
2: That's actually a really good point. I hadn't actually considered that. Yeah. Uh,
0: the National Women's Council, for example.
2: Well, exactly. And, you know, we've had this kind of debate before about the National Women's Council, if you remember, when they were inviting, I think it was Sinn Féin speakers, but not government speakers, to a rally that would have technically been for all women. I can't remember the exact nature of it now, but I wrote about it at the time, which just goes to show you how good my memory is. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a really good point. Um, and also, I think as well, like if you think about the flip side of what you asked, maybe political parties potentially vote no, like you mentioned, aim to and stuff. There is a question of, it is a bit of a hard one to campaign against removing this reference, which is really controversial and contentious. Um, And yes, you can argue that the carers' provision should have gone further. But when you have family carers, Ireland, you know, who represent hundreds of thousands of carers coming out and they came out on Thursday supporting, I think it becomes a lot more difficult for any government politician particularly but they won't obviously but any politician in in uh the Iraq to justify why there's a no vote beyond if you don't know vote Indeed, no. Indeed,
0: but it does give an opportunity to a range of other voices who may be quite minority and and in, in in their position and don't normally get onto let's say the you know the airwaves or into or into newspapers. Uh, the way in which we construct our referendums actually gives them an opportunity. Yeah. Should they should they be campaigning in the yeah. I mean one example I'll, I'll give which is I I think quite obvious is that some people who are involved in debates about trans rights on the gender critical side are jumping in on the no side, you know. Um
2: hmm. So there's, there's you- that. And also, I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself here now as well, because we talked about the children's rights referendum. You know, they had a no campaign and you could you could also make the point who wants to campaign against children's rights. And yet they had such a huge, um, much larger than expected, no vote, I think really it comes in to this point of the effectiveness of the government communicating the things that we've talked about. What is a durable relationship? Um, why are these two issues tied together? Why didn't you go further? And be honest, like it's about resources. It's about economics, you know, um, and to find somebody. Because if you remember the abortion referendum, Simon Harris was really and still is very effective. Probably the government's best communicator. Actually, they had him out every day and he was on top of it. Like he was incisive, you know, and I'm not saying Roger Gorman's not because he's incredibly intelligent. But perhaps I think they need to sharpen that message up. But it's difficult. If they're
1: gonna, then, given that there's two questions being put to the people on the same day as well, both of which actually are quite complicated mm. when you go down to it. I, I, I don't
0: even know what you call these referendums. Family and, that's always and care, an family thing. and care, but that family doesn't even care, adequately okay. reflect
1: mm. what it's about, really. You know, it, it, you call it the care referendum, but that doesn't tell people that the intention is to delete the women, women in in the home, the home reference, reference. You know, so it's yeah. it's very difficult to summarise in a in a in a sound bite for a politician that's going to be out out arguing for this in the coming months.
0: And is the reality, ultimately, as was finally on, the, on, on this point, that for whether they're in the opposition parties, whether they're in the government parties, uh, I was reading a piece by Keir Starmer last week, which said that he is laser focused. He doesn't care about anything. He is absolutely determined in everything he does from the moment he wakes up in the morning to the moment he falls asleep at night is to win the bloody election. And is that not true uh, yeah. of every elected politician Listen, in this country right the now? the
2: first day back of the doll was Wednesday. And went in, I, I went in, by the way, so like, yes, gonna grab this year, gonna, I left. like, oh my God, <laughs> no, but um, I got out of the lift, first politician, I bumped into some senior in Gael, came, made a line for me and was like, the election, when is it? When is it? When's the election? I was like, well, you should know, not me. Uh, went into the canteen, when's the election? By the end of the day, I was absolutely sick of talking about, it's all anyone's talking about on the first day back, really, the lad, behind the, the scenes. Lad, I was in
1: Leicester House the last couple of days before Christmas. The exact same thing,
2: yeah. And so, so I'd obsessed. say
1: I'd say there were multiple politicians whose Christmases were ruined uh, by by anxiety over over when when this thing will be held. And like I don't know, I still I still think we're going to have the the month of, the super month of elections in November. with... agree, US mm-hmm. election first, British election second, Irish mm-hmm. election third. That's.
0: But in a way, it is a little depressing, isn't it? And not just for you guys, maybe for all of us as well, because it actually means that nothing meaningful gets done or anything that gets done is done in a very very sort of a shallow and superficial way.
2: Or that important decisions that are potentially difficult to make get put off because they know that this is coming down. Like if you look at this massive issue with restaurants and the warehousing of tax, more than likely, that will be pushed off. I think we I think we can assume that at this stage... The date will be deferred. The date will be deferred, and there'll be another package of supports, even though there's a reason why, albeit it is absolutely devastating for businesses. Um, stuff like that. And also, I think it also portrays the fact that... The fact that politicians are so obsessed with this and talking about this, and they are, like... um, I think it shows how exhausted a lot of them are, that they're kind of... I think a lot of them are sick of it. And I, they won't say it, and they can't say it, but you can see it in their faces when you're talking to them. <laughs> Ministers, too, they seem like... There's I think some a, of them are just a checked practical
1: out. side. I mean, it takes bloody ages for for legislation to get over the line, you know. Yeah. So we, if if it's a November election, we've got ten months, of which two months at least are summer recess when nothing's going to happen, you know. So it's, the the, the timescale for doing anything significant now is rapidly closing, and uh, you know it's it's we're going to see a lot of things that haven't been delivered rolling into party manifestos or or things like that. I I feel that towards the end of the year,
2: or even the RTE issue, like. Who wants to be the minister who brings in a new broadcasting levy or general taxation funded state broadcaster then, do, do they when also, they have an election in a few Do they months? also
1: want to campaign, you know, on the promise of we're going to bring in a new broadcasting charge or, or we're not just going to do it? it so you this know. is
0: depressing. This is the year of nothing happens then?
2: No, I don't think so. I do think things will happen, but just nothing, <laughs> nothing some, some bad things, some things have to
1: happen, but it's going to be yeah. priorities, I think.
2: I agree. Yeah, totally. And I don't know, I just think like, it is a little bit depressing to listen to, but also, if I'm being completely honest, bring it on. Right.
0: Every time of this week, we uh, each select an article from irishtimes.com, which was published over the course of the week, which we find interesting. I've got to go first. Uh, today, I picked uh, one today, actually, from Gordon Manning on a subject which has been covered extensively over the course of the week, which is uh, proposals to rename Parky queeve in Cork as and the glorious title of Super Value Park. Now, uh, this has caused ructions, including from the Tauniste. Uh Michael Martin is not happy about this, um, and has and has expressed his displeasure. I mean, we're all familiar with. The idea of renaming places. To be honest, I still call the Aviva, uh, Lansdowne Road. Do you uh, actually though? Um, yeah, I do uh, most what, most, what of the time. About, uh, most of the time. Theatre. Most of the time. I I I think that is a disaster of a name. It's it, it's yeah. it's not that because it never really had a name previously. I think it was called Brancanale, the Grand the Canal Theatre. What for, about the Three for, Arena? For the, the Three Arena. I call the Three Arena, but I know plenty of people who call it the Point. You I know, I call so it the two. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm, I'm certain. I'm pretty it's certain nobody
1: calls the Tree Olympia the Tree Olympia.
0: Um, no. Y- no, no, nobody nobody does that. And there are a bunch of other things around the place. Plus, it, get, it all gets very confusing. There's, you know, the rugby ground in Cork was called Musgrave Park. Then it was called Irish Independent Park. Not words that pass my lips very often, but uh, um, exactly. it was called that for four years or so. And now it's become Virgin Media Park. Does anybody is anybody really going to call it Virgin Media no, Park? But but, I, also, but
1: it, it's probably it's probably good for Musgraves because I think everyone still just remembers it as Musgrave Park.
0: Yeah, it, was, <laughs> you know, it wasn't <laughs> even <laughs> named after Musgraves in the in the, in, in, okay. in, in, in the first place, which just goes to show the level of confusion. Also, I'm told uh, I'm told by my uh, by my informants in Cork that everybody just calls it the park anyway.
2: Oh really? Uh, but also like who looks at Supermax? I'm sorry, like who thought that was a good idea?
0: Well, it just goes to show that it doesn't work because I it's Super Value, it not Supermax.
2: Oh, there you go, Super Value doesn't work. I when I saw the uh, headline which. I clearly didn't read very carefully. I actually thought it was an April Fool's <laughs> joke. I was like, was that a, can't be it was real. It's a great like,
1: one for Cork politicians, though. Hall Martin was out very quickly to say that he, he didn't think much of this this idea, as were as were several others. So, you know, the fact that it, it seems to have been uh, scuppered to some degree uh, is 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 very good for them.
0: Yeah, good for them, if, if, if nobody else. Now, you were looking at a piece by Dennis Staunton about the visit this week to Ireland of the second most powerful politician from China, Li Chang.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how how this was was covered in China. Uh, I, got, I got it from Dennis's piece to People's Daily, which is the 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 official news outlet of the Chinese Communist Party. Ran with a, a headline along the lines of uh, President Michael Lee Higgins meets uh, Premier uh, Li Chang. Uh, no mention of Leo Varadkar anywhere there or anything like that. And Dennis Dennis was writing that if if you were to look at the the Chinese press, you'd get the impression that it was Michael Lee Higgins. who was actually actually in charge of things over here. Um, no mention of the beef uh, deal that was done, uh, which, which sees the, the reopening of the Chinese market to to Irish beef after that uh, atypical BSE scare there in November. Uh, one thing they did mention was the the, the extension of uh, v- travel rights uh, to Irish citizens. China, you can go there now without a visa for 15 days. Um, you know, talk of economic ties, you know, global warming, all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, you talk of human rights? No, no. But well, that's not to be expected. Really, it, it was. It was. Well, brought not, up from, by
0: not, not from the Chinese media, no, obviously. No, I mean, it, it, up, look, yeah. it was.
1: It was brought up by by. President Higgins, it was brought up by the Taoiseach He he actually outlined the, the issues that he talked about. He he mentioned the, the plight of the Uyghurs in in Xinjiang province. He mentioned uh, uh, Hong Kong, where there's been a crackdown of freedoms. He mentioned the case of Jimmy Lai, the newspaper publisher that uh, that is facing trial for seditious material. His newspaper was very critical of the the the, the new laws being brought into Hong Kong by the Chinese Communist Party. So the, these these issues were mentioned, but I I do think it would be a mistake to think that it was it was it was a topic that dominated at the meeting uh, the Chinese side obviously dispute all of the, all of those allegations and the meeting was really about economic ties And the streets uh, of Dublin
0: were not Dublin. exactly full of protesters against China's abuses of human rights were they as they are in, in other similar visits from other leaders?
2: No, in fact the most, uh, most I heard were people complaining about the traffic honestly mm.
1: it, it, Farm me it. is a very good location if you're going to close the Phoenix Park to, to keep protesters away in fairness I mean there's, there's no way anyone was getting anywhere near Farm House, No, Although so.
0: it didn't really seem to be necessary
1: no, no, it was. But yeah. well, we didn't see see much much elsewhere either. That's true. Jen, what have you been reading?
2: Um, I picked a piece by Jared Howland. He's fantastic writer, and we've had him in here on the podcast before. Um, and he is talking about the issue of immigration. He's talking specifically about how we're kind of in a different world now in in twenty twenty four. About how the Catholic Church kind of you know lost its reputation, and how we kind of have these more liberal values which we reached, you know, after the economic crash with same-sex marriage referendum and abortion. And so I think the point he's making is that we maybe became arrogant in, in some ways thinking that we were you know a new society a new culture who'd shed kind of the shackles of the past and that we were open and we're welcoming and we're different from all of the other pressures you see geopolitically different countries um but it's he has It's sort
0: of a philosophical piece isn't it he kind yeah. of identifies what he sees as a kind of vacuity at the at the heart of Irish politi- post Catholic yep. secular liberal Irish politics
2: Yeah, yeah. and yeah he and he, he talks exactly about that and he has a line in it where he says that the you know the toxicity is a culture where the grace of new money, withstanding, there is less confidence and tolerance. After all, you know about how we initially opened our doors and welcomed everybody in, and now that open hand is is closing. Um, I kind of disagree with him to a certain degree because I do agree that I do think there there can be an arrogance sometimes where you think you know we've we've got all these social change changes that we've implemented. The Catholic Church doesn't have nearly as much of a hold. Um, uh, as previously was the case, and and that we're kind of this new upward, open, outward facing Ireland of of liberals or whatever. Mm. Um, and he's the point. Sorry, the point that he's making is that that is not necessarily the case. That the, we've already we've always had this kind of inside sort of tension. Um, I think the danger is if you mark everybody as being anti-immigrant, which he's not doing, but if you're saying that the far right who have infiltrated. A lot of these protests who have turned up in Ross Cray and other different areas. And, you know, we see scuffles and stuff. There are locals in all of those areas who looked at that and thought, that's not us. And, you know, this is not what we stand for. And these are not the issues that we have. I just think the danger is amplifying almost the um, influence and sway of what is actually a small group in reality. And I think the vast majority of people in Ireland Albeit for, and I hate that term, genuine concerns, because it leads you all different places, but I think the vast majority of people are actually... Kind of what he says, we're not.
0: Although polls show, and I need to be clear about this, polls show that I think seventy-five percent of Irish people polled uh, think that immigration is too high. Now, saying that does not necessarily mean anything like what you are saying and the kind of the kind of comments from people in the far right. But you know, the argument would be that that view is not reflected uh, is not reflected in the political establishment. That would be the critique.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm, I mean.
0: Of course, it's a a problematic question, because what does that actually mean? I know, yeah, it is, it is.
2: And also, like, it's kind of, when we're at the very start of the year, and we talked before about how the first, all the front pages in the Irish Times for the first week or two or three, and we see it almost every day now, if not every second day, immigration is this white-hot issue. And I think, obviously, it has potential to become so much more divisive. And I'm not saying that that's not the case. I just think sometimes we can think, you know, this is the big issue, and everybody, you know, feels the same way. It's just not necessarily the case.
0: Mm. So when you listen to that, I was thinking in the year ahead... Final thought, and I'd be interested to know what you what you think of it. Is that um, the most important factor in any real election? I'm thinking about this because I'm reading about it in the American primaries going on at the moment. Is the people who don't normally think about politics and whose attention turns to politics for that brief span of the run into an election and then yeah. it turns away from it again? They're the people who probably aren't listening to this podcast, but they're the people who are going to decide the next election. We might have to have to get them to start listening to this podcast, I suppose.
2: I know. Yeah. I mean, seriously, we're going to have to up our game in terms of advertising or something. But yeah. It is true that's why people tune in just before an election really and they people have busy lives you know and a lot of people just and that's absolutely fair enough to be honest with you and then in, you'll see it in the couple of weeks leading up to election and in the campaign itself people sit down and be like right whom i vote for and whom I'm not voting for. And up until then, it's all to play for...
0: Yeah, we're, you're quite right. We're going to have to get out there and tell them about this podcast so they can inform themselves. But we will leave it there for this week. Thanks very much to Jen and to Cormac for joining us. Thanks to our producer, John Casey, our engineer is JJ Vernon. Thanks to him as well. We're going to have a lovely weekend, but we will be back uh, full of vim and vigour after that. Talk to you soon.